could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. I never got home, those, those, those boys. Welcome to Second Captain Sunday. Oh, my David here with Ken and Murph. Good morning, fellas. Good morning, Good morning on. on. It's a beautiful island nation that we're part of, Ken, surrounded as we are by the Atlantic Ocean and the Irish Sea. Uh-huh. Many people derive great joy from swimming in those vast swathes of water, and it's that love of swimming that we're going to be exploring on the show today. Unfortunately, it's a joy that I haven't truly experienced, I have to admit. You've never swum? Well, it's not that I've never done it. I just never learned, really. Yeah, I've been, in, I've been in the water, Ken. I did lessons as a kid, like most people. They just they never quite took, or maybe I never quite took to them. Yeah. No taking took place, right. if you know what I mean. Yeah. So the beginning of the end was our third class swimming gala. Uh-huh. A big one there. Most of the kids were swimming lengths at this stage. One or two of the less gifted athletes, myself and Trevor, a friend of mine at the time, <laughs> were only required to swim one width of the pool. Right. Then jump out the far side and burst a balloon by sitting on it for some reason. Well, I suppose the teacher knew that you'd completed, you, the, the pop would alert them to the finish. <laughs> and, and everybody Obviously, was safe and sound. it would be too depressing to actually watch you and Trevor try and swim a, a wit. Now, Trevor was no Michael Phelps, but he did leave me floundering in his wake. And by the time I finally bashed my way across the pool, I was so embarrassed that I couldn't burst the bloody balloon. It took, must have taken me even longer to burst the balloon than it did to swim across the width. The humiliation never left me, so I just stopped going to lessons. Right. Good, good heart shown by me there. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. First side of uh, trouble. And of course, the least you can do in a situation like that is tell your mum who's paying for the lessons that you just, you just can't do them anymore. Mm. You're, just, you're just mentally too fragile. No, I was too much of a wimp to do that. So I just kept pretending I was going, would pack the gear bag every Tuesday, whatever day it was, go off, play football, yeah. come back. Tell my mum I had a great swim. I'm really coming along there. <laughs> uh, until one day, after a supposed swimming lesson, she asked me to open my sports bag. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh no, that's a problem. How do you deal with this? No problem, I said confidently. Yeah. Thinking that this would just my, my confidence alone would see me through here. She called my bluff, opened the bag, bone dry gear inside. Yeah, she was thinking, I've never actually had to give him a, a, a dry towel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not a drop of water on the towel in the bag or the togs. Never has a parent been more disappointed in a child. Than so I should apologise right now. I don't think I've ever fully apologised to my mum for that. So I do, I do apologise wholeheartedly. I know you can't even comprehend this, Ken. You were a competitive swimmer yourself. Well, the truth is, I wasn't hugely enthusiastic about it either, but you were crude dishonesty was not um, a solution uh, for my my situation was more complicated so to go down to the pool you know at a quarter to five for two hours of intense suffering before school something that only that not everybody I wasn't one of the people who actually enjoyed that but I had a sister a year younger than me who was extremely good you know like Mm -hmm. a champion kind of swimmer so I had a close-up view of her greatness I mean she would she would go to America to train and she'd come back saying things like practice instead of training 3 <laughs> 30 instead of half three yeah, yeah. I can't describe how annoying that was to me at the time but not as annoying as as actually being bullied by her in a fit you know if you if you imagine being 12 and you've got a younger sister who's bullying you in a physical endeavor it's, sure. it's you know it's not great so I didn't like those mornings but I also couldn't quit because that would have been admitting that she had mm. won so I kind of had to keep going suspended between laziness and shame for a few years until laziness won out. But I often look at the, at the uh, beautiful coastal waters, uh, the magnificent waters around our island and think to myself, if they were just a 
couple of degrees warmer I think, really get back into open water swimming I can't be the only one out what there what a pair of sporting heroes you both are I'm sure yeah I can't be the only one out there who didn't take to the water all moral support is welcome 51551 or tweet at second captains today's guest was a top class swimmer winning a series of national titles she even came close to qualifying for the Olympic Games for crying out loud she's since made her name as one of Ireland's most internationally renowned artists working in a variety of media including sculpture photography video installation her works can be seen all over the world from the US to the Tate Modern in London as well as here at home the Hugh Lane Gallery and the Irish Museum of Modern Art uh, amongst others Dorothy Cross is on the show today Murph and she's here to win what does Dorothy have to do to hit top spot in our race to find Ireland's greatest non-sports person sports person for 2017 I could have been a contender I could have been somebody I'm, I remember Paul O'Connell threw a tennis ball at the at the, the I was only in first year now he would have been in sixth year when he threw a tennis ball at the principal's head and got away with it like. <laughs> And is this true? Yeah. So that was about as close to high level sporting achievement as last week's guest, Blind Boy Boat Club of the Rubber Bandits, got. Ending with just 42 points out of 100 for last place on our This Sporting Life leaderboard. It was scant consolation to him, I'm sure, that he was hugely popular with our <laughs> listeners. Uh, now, can today's guest, Dorothy Cross, do any better? The score she has to beat to take top spot from longtime leader Nikki Byrne of Westlife is 87 and a half points. Pat Short's on 87. Adam's. Adam Hills is on 82 and Maeve Higgins is now out of the drop zone on 72 points. I have a feeling that this could be tight though. On. Yeah, 87 and a half is an imposing number but not unreachable I would suggest. Tweet us at Second Captains text 51551 email secondcaptains at rt.ie Dorothy Cross is coming right up. This is Second Captains Sunday. Some brilliant Irish music there to start us off this morning. Villagers and Nothing Arrived. Now our guest today is an Irish artist of international renown. She also has a sporting pedigree that threatens to blow the competition wide open on Second Captain Sunday, joining us from Connemara. Dorothy Cross, welcome to the show. Thank you. Talk us through those swimming credentials as a teenager straight away, if you don't mind. We've laid them out a little bit already, but is it fair to call you a serial winner of national titles as a youngster? Exactly, exactly. A long, long time ago, from about the age of 11 to 17. Um, it was 100 metres breaststroke, and I actually had to check with my brother, Tom Cross, who was the national coach uh, for several years at the time, to, fi- to remember, because it's so long ago. <laughs> but apparently... Uh, I won the uh, under 15 at the age of 12 and then continued through to the um, adult until the age of 17 in the 100 breaststroke. Winning every year? Winning every year, apparently. That's pretty yes. do- pretty dominant stuff. <laughs> How far did that go? How serious did you get about it? Pretty serious, obviously, if you were Well, it was level. very serious in those days. But um, and we, we swam like 360 days of the year and took five days off at Christmas and then took weeks to pick up the, the fitness to get back in into the same level again. But if you look at it compared to what kids are doing now the, the, I'd say we probably did half the distance in training you know it, it's, it was a different ball game back then Before you got competitive I understand that it was a pretty it was always swimming and being in the water was always a pretty big part of your childhood even in day to day life Exactly kind of the pleasure of and we were lucky enough to live by the sea for three months of the year and kind of get thrown in at an early age. But I, I wasn't confident. I nearly drowned when I was about uh, nine because I was trying to copy my brilliant sister, Jane, <laughs> and swim, swim out to a, a far rock. And 
then I just started gurgling and seeing the sun and seaweed and she had to drag me out so, and then it was a kind of a luring process that um, my brother saw that I had a good breaststroke kick so he, he said if you train you can go to Butlins to swim in the National Swimming Championships and I was much more um, I was in love with Butlins I thought it was a fantastic place you know with donuts and um, roller skating and a pool with windows along the edge that you could see people swimming through the bottom yes I remember it yeah yeah, fanta- yeah it was fabulous it was so exotic so that was the, the carrot really so then I started training for the 50 metres breaststroke you're talking to us from Connemara today so is the sea still a pretty big part of your life there well, still idyllic, actually. I, I look out my window at um, Inish Turk and Clare Island and Ackle, and it, it is absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I, I came here at a later point in my life after kind of I did the drudgery of art college and everything and traveling all around the world. And so I was 40 by the time I actually managed to make my way out here. You know, when the Celtic Tiber, Tiger happened in Dublin and, and warehouses were so expensive to rent, I kind of lost my lease because it was massively expensive. And I lived in an old sewing factory um, in the middle of Dublin. So I moved out here and bought a field, actually, to begin with, and then bought a little house and then little by little added on a studio. And I've been here now for 14 years. So were you a kind of an economic migrant to Connemara? Kind of. Yeah, actually, yes. After spending 10 years abroad in my early education, then maybe 15 years back in Dublin, moving around from basement flats and uh, to an eventual lovely warehouse, and then... Uh, it was it was a mixture between thinking I could never afford to buy anything because being an artist, you can make a big lump of money, but I would use it to travel. And I always felt the word mortgage had death in it, which it does do. Actually, the first half of the word is death in French. So um, I, was, I was very slow to get myself into that um, pickle. And I'm still in it at my age now. But um, luckily, getting closer to the end, you know, in both senses of the word. <laughs> <laughs> How did you handle the uh, change of pace? It's a lot quieter in Connemara than in Dublin. Well, you have a very quiet, slow voice there now. <laughs> um, Suits Connemara. Uh, you know, in the beginning, well, I came over here to scuba dive, which is very interesting in relationship to swimming. There's a brilliant dive center on the mouth of Killary Harbor called Scuba Dive West. And I had done most of my diving in the South Pacific, Galapagos, Baja California, Red Sea, etc. And um, diving with them here in, in the North Atlantic is very different, but very beautiful. And what you do when you scuba dive is you slow down. You actually have to learn not to swim. So I was busy kicking and pulling and everything when I first went down. But it's all about cruising and flying really slowly. It's magic. Um, So I think in tandem with that, moving to this small little wrecked bungalow um, and looking out the window every day, it was a mixture between shock and pleasure. Because sometimes you look out, you can see a dolphin or a hare or an otter, you know, those wonderful, rare, beautiful things. But it was a shock. Uh, it's like a movie screen, my, my window. Um, but now I guess I'm there 14 years. It's becoming more uh, regular, but it, it still never fails to shock. And the way I live with art is that um, I think I was old enough in my career to manage to survive in, in the slowness of Connemara. But I have to travel a lot to the gallery in Dublin or London or wherever I'm showing. So that's the balance in, in my sanity, because I do need that. Mm-hmm. I do need the chaos of that and the speed of that, I think, to balance out the the lovely beauty of, of, of the nature of Connemara, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So, Dorothy, you obviously do this scuba diving for pleasure to an extent, but it seems to inform your work as well. You've, you've traditionally done a lot of 
a lot of stuff around creatures of the ocean. Not not often the most popular creatures either, sharks and jellyfish, these kind of characters. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's funny how that happened. It, it's, um, I began... Uh, paying attention first before I started to scuba dive with snakes and, and how they've been maligned and used in religion, crushed under the heel of the of the virgin, etc, etc. And um, I made a piece where I, I, I got some snakes from a scientific supplier in, in North Carolina and I was gutting them as we used to gut fish in, in Fountainstone when we were fishing for mackerel and found their hearts. And of course, a, a snake has a heart, but it really, really uh, made me consider the nature of this animal that is so exquisite, but most people hate. And then later, going into the underwater realm, when you're face to face with a shark or, or a jellyfish, you see its beauty. And especially the shark is used as a symbol of terror and ultimately death. But it's it, wh- when you swim with them, they're very, very. In fact, no shark really will attack you if, if they know you're a human because we're not good food. We're bony old things. Um, so it's usually misidentification. And, you know, they, they watch you when you're diving with shark and they're so exquisitely beautiful. One time I was hanging on one of these um, on a reef um, out in the Cocos Islands with this cord that connected your weight belt to the reef. So you're being held in this current with this battalion of sharks out in the blue who they just lie there and they can hold their position. And as humans, we can't. But because of this cord, you could float level with this whole battalion of animals. And it's just such a privilege and so amazingly uh, exquisite. And you, you're limited. You have that short, short period of time down with there as long as your tank of air lasts. But it is pretty wonderful. Yeah, and there's that uh, statistic that uh, more people are killed by chairs around the world every year than sharks, uh, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> uh, throwing a chair at you. The statistic's <laughs> no good to you, though. You know, I mean, there's always the... The off chance. I mean, it could it could be you. Most people yeah. are not in the water with sharks. I mean, I, I wonder what your what your impression was the first time you you actually were diving and, and saw a shark nearby. I mean, was it not at least a little bit kind of scary? Well, yes, it was. I was in Galapagos a long time ago, about thirty years ago, and there was only one dive master there at the time, and he said he'd bring me down to the Hammerheads without without any qualifications. His name was Fernando. And so I didn't sleep a wink. I had dreams of these giant hammerheads come looming up over rocks. But then when you actually see them and you're down there with them, that's the difference between reality and imagination, isn't it? Um, it that you're in their realm and, and you have a remove, you're kind of, you know you're not um, part of that because again, it's such a short period of time you spend with it. But there's some ease that occurs when you're down there that, is is fantastic. It's um, it's really really calm and beautiful. And especially, I've, I speak about this a lot. When you're if you're diving in no reference, if it's in the blue, so you can't see the top and the bottom or the sides, and a shark comes into that blue, because colours disappear at depth. You know, if you bleed, the blood looks black, for example, because reds disappear. Um, you have this perceptual thing where you think you see and you don't see. And actually, when you're on the surface of the water, if you see a fin of a shark, I think it's much more terrifying than if you're down there and they're level with you. I think maybe because of that ingrained thing of movies and jaws and the fin, etc., etc. Um, but no, when I'm with them, no, I'm not. I'm not afraid. But then I've never encountered a tiger or a great white, and I don't put myself into those situations. You know, I've driven or uh, dived in Northern California in the kelp beds, and I was cautious and afraid. And I don't actually put myself in those situations. You you know, generally speaking, where you might encounter different species. 
I know, Dorothy, that I've got a brother-in-law who's already turned off the radio at all this talk of sharks. <laughs> Are you trying to challenge people like that with your work? Is the idea that they're supposed to come out with a new appreciation of these sort of maligned animals? Well, it, it's more, it's, I think it's more about uh, putting us on the same level, that we're, we're the top of the, the pile in terms of being animal. And we have bodies, bones, skin, etc., like, um, like a shark or a snake or whatever. So it's actually bringing us back into that. And in some ways, the, the human is much more terrifying than the shark. If you look, look at the world we're living in. But um, I think it depends. Like the shark, one piece of work I made with a shark, um, it was a poor beagle shark that we got in a fishmonger's in Cork and a friend of mine who ran a restaurant used the meat. And I, I had the skin for ages. I pickled it in my studio. So it is slightly not very pleasant, a lot of this work. But then after a period of time, the idea would come, like, what can you do with the skin that will make it valuable to the animal and to the human? So I gilded the inside of the skin with pure 18 karat gold. So what you're doing is applying uh, a material that's so valuable to the human being inside what is considered invaluable to the human being, the mm -hmm. skin of a shark, and you're kind of making a relic of it. Or, so it becomes like this reliquary um, that is almost sacred alchemically if you think about it so you have this duality that occurs between gold and skin that's very beautiful and a lot of my work is about bringing things that we're comfortable with together with things that we're uncomfortable with because i think more and more as humans we're um removed from things that we possibly might fear you know there's too much health and safety in this world you know if they really had their way they wouldn't let you get out of bed in the morning yeah, you know it's it is a risk to live we have a short very short period of time on this planet the planet's under massive threat from the likes of those idiots in the united states pulling out of environmental um support systems and if you think about it, those polar bears in another few years aren't going to have a lump of ice to jump on to hunt mm. for a seal. And that is a massive crime. So, But at the same time, it's looking at our own vulnerabilities in terms of our insides, our bones and all that. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, we spoke to a lot of people this week, Dorothy, about your work, about what it is. That, that makes a lot of it special. The piece that a lot of people kept coming back to was Ghost Ship. I'm guessing oh, this yeah. is one that you're asked about quite regularly. Can you explain to, to those listening what that piece was? Well, it was, it, was, it was a beautiful piece, actually. Ghost Ship I made in 1999, or we made, I should say, because it was a massive group effort. Uh, it was a very simple idea. It was for a project in, in, in the area of Dublin, funded by Nissan Cars, to make a piece of work that didn't exist for very long. And I, again, back to Fountainstown, where I grew up as a kid for the summers, there used to be a light ship at, at the mouth of uh, Cork Harbour called the Daunt Light Ship, and it marked an underwater reef, big red ship with the word Daunt painted in white on it. And there were about 26 of them all around Ireland in that time, which have now been de decommissioned for satellite boys. But one of them was moored uh, in, in Dublin Bay, and it was very derelict. So I had a simple, simple idea, borrow the ship, and paint it with phosphorus paint and have it illuminated in the middle of Dublin Bay so that it would glow like a ghost over a period of three weeks, which we did do. And um, it was at times beautiful. There was lots of technical problems and um, 
all that. But it was it really touched people's imaginations. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, taxi drivers, you know, a woman phoned me up and said that her dog used to go out every night and sit on the wall and watch the ghost ship. You know, little kids <laughs> used to send me drawings. It was very, very popular and beautiful and magic. It was like a big toy. But also people who didn't see it used to the way they imagine it was so easy to imagine they imagined that they could because it's a universal thing really uh, a ghost ship um so that was probably it's a long time ago now 1999 but it was a very beautiful thing and i wanted at the time that maybe it would be tugged all around the coast of ireland so that you would come across it accidentally because when you knew it was in dublin it was more like a theater and you drove your car out there and you sat and watched. But it would have been magnificent if you encountered it without knowing. Why do you the think thrill it, of that. Yeah. Why do you think it was that it did touch people in the way you described there? I think it was that mixture of imagination and, and theatre. Also, it referred to past life, like the light ships were very important in Ireland um, uh, up to decommissioning. And 13 men, 12 or 13, used to live on board. And there was no engine. So it was a period in life that more risk was taken again. Um, And they would live three weeks on, three weeks off. There were famous disasters on them. Um, So it it belonged to history, the time of my father in a way. But it's also about desire, isn't it? It's about wanting to see something glowing on the horizon. Um, It's like kind of the Bermuda Triangle. It's about all those things that have mystery in them. Because... Mystery is very important, I think, in terms of um, our desire to discover. And, and, and art is about that. Art is about discovery. Um, and the trouble with visual art, I think, these days, and the reason I think it's important to talk on something like this, is that I think visual art becomes corralled into just market and monetary value and, and silliness, actually. And I think the essence of art is extremely important and is something that has run through uh, life, the human life, you know, obviously for centuries, like you go to the Lascaux Caves and you see a drawing of a bison. And there was a beautiful film uh, by Herzog where he talks about the line drawing the back of the bison, differing from another line redrawing the back of the bison with 5,000 years difference in time. So it's something that it is is valuable through time. But um, I think in the modern uh, world, uh, you know, I'm getting to the end of my life. Well, I'm, I'm hopefully not yet, <laughs> but, you know, being older, um, time seems to have been in some ways kind of hijacked and people, including myself, are possibly taking less time to consider. And when art is good and that encounter, that singular private encounter where you take time, even if you don't take much time in the presence of the art, that you go away with the memory of it, that it actually shifts you in the way you are in the world. And that's when visual art is good, I think. And it's not about how much it costs or, you know, some celebrity going to some club in London. It's not nothing to do with that. You think that is how it's presented? Is, is that well, very often, yeah, I right. think so, don't you? don't you? What do you think about, yeah. for you guys there now? Yeah, I think the whole idea of, of, of a private um, kind of thought, or, or like, I, I mean, you're talking about this this sort of time to consider and to, and to sort of experience something the, the very idea of something private is is increasingly regarded as worthless. I mean, if you can't share it immediately with everybody <laughs> on Instagram, then it's kind of like, what's the point? Did it even did it even really exist? Like that that sort of uh, sphere is uh, is kind of disappearing from the world. I think. 
That's right. That's right. And, you know, I do Instagram, too, and I love it. I'm slightly addicted to it. But and I, I don't use it so much for my physical work because there's something about the physicality, you see, and that's the difference between Internet to iPhone, whatever, and the presence of something physically. And you see, I, I don't I, I make sculptures, so I make things out of things that already are energetically kind of um, bouncing with energy. So, for example, if I have a skin of a shark in my studio or at the moment I have meteorites and pieces of human skull, they have a, a physical energy that you can't see on Instagram um, that has to be experienced. Um, and, and I think that's the worry or maybe maybe it shouldn't be a worry. Maybe just that's the way we're going to go. But that's where my heart lies. And interestingly enough, I'll tell you a story if you, if you have time. Absolutely, yeah. Um, recently, uh, a woman called Mary Hickson, who runs a wonderful festival in Cork called Sounds from a Safe Harbour, she, uh, she phoned up and said, I have a Navy ship. Would you like to use it for a project? And actually, 15 years ago with Fiona Shaw, we had access to a Navy ship and we never made the project. But I'm very attracted by all that hardware and the efficiency of those ships that on one hand are destructive, but are also very protective. So we had this arena of this ship and I wanted to make a ship called Heart Ship, which sounds a bit corny, but the idea was very simple. In fact, almost as simple as a ghost ship, that uh, this ship would harbor a human heart in a gold tabernacle on its bow. And then I recorded the beautiful Lisa Hannigan singing songs about the heart with her fantastic angelic ethereal voice combined with a glass harmonica player called Alistair Malloy. And we have made those recordings in London. And they were going to emanate from this ship, pulsate out as the ship came up Cork Harbor but we have not been able to borrow a heart. And it's, you could write a book about this, actually, <laughs> because it's been such a difficult project. None of the universities in Ireland who have hundreds of hearts sitting in glass jars are allowed to lend us a heart. Um, the museums, um, also, they take years to process loan forms. But there's a beautiful little story here. A heart was found in a niche in a, in a, in a crypt in Cork in 1863, wrapped in lead. And I had seen it in an exhibition in Wellcome Trust in London. And it's owned now by the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford because Pitt Rivers was a member of the British Army, was living in Cork, and he acquired the heart. So we were trying to borrow that heart for one single day. Wrapped in lead, nobody would see it. It's an anonymous heart. You don't know whether it's male or female. And it's a common emblem for all of us. We all have this small pulsating thing in our chests. But we still have not been able to get the heart. And, but it will happen at some point in time. But it's so interesting to see the fear and the bureaucracy around that organ. You know, I bet we wouldn't have half as much trouble if we were looking for a lung, you know, um, because people imbue that organ with such power and value, probably correctly. And it is such a symbol of, of love and, um, and life. So our, our hardship is languishing. All right, Dorothy, we're going to take a quick break before we really get into the nuts and bolts of your champion swimming career that we've been talking about a little bit. Will it be enough to claim top spot as Ireland's greatest ever non-sports person, sports person? Find out next as we rate this sporting life of Dorothy Cross. RTE Radio 1. Second cap, first cap, whatever. I never got on those, those, those boys.
You're listening to Second Captain Sunday here with Owen, Ken, and Murph. Hi, guys. Hi, Owen. Texan here saying, Hi, Second Captain's lovely to hear the villagers, uh, to hear villagers, I should say, on a Sunday. Dorothy Cross is fearless and inspirational, a welcome addition to the West Coast. She's a keeper. That comes from a mediocre swimmer in La Hinch, apparently. Well, mediocre is better than any level I got to, so well done on that. 51551 is the number to text there. You can tweet at Second Captains. Our guest, as you've heard, is talking to us from Connemara. She's forged a career as an internationally renowned artist, but it's the sporting life of Dorothy Cross we want to focus on now. Before we get into the swimming, Dorothy, I wanted to ask you about one of your sporting heroes, because back in 2014, you had a bit of a dream job. You were given the run of many of the top cultural institutions in Ireland, the National Museum, the Natural History Museum, National Gallery, the Crawford Gallery in Cork and IMA, the Irish Museum of Modern Art. Your task was to pick out a hundred objects from all those collections and then present them in one exhibition. And one of the items you chose was a photograph of a footballer. How did an image of Roy Keane end up getting picked for these, uh, this prestigious ex- exhibition, I should say? Well, um, it's in the collection of the Crawford Gallery in Cork and it's it's a kind of arty portrait of Roy's piercing eyes as he's holding this skeleton of a bird's beak across his face. And I put him in a room with an ancient football, an old leather football and a fake wooden gun and uh, a beautiful uh, etching of Roger Casement. Um, and it was about the, that kind of arena of um, anger and fighting and um, icon. And Roy, in his early days in particular, I guess, um, I, I, I enjoyed his anger and his passion. Um, and it was the only image of a sports person in any of the collections, actually. Um, but there was a pe- there was a period in my life where I did play with um, sport a little bit. I, I made a series of works using cow's udders way back in the early 90s because I'd seen an object in Norway in a museum of a sieve made out of a cow's udder that was very utilitarian and, and extraordinary because I had never seen anything other than a live cow with its udder. So what I did was I wrapped um, a, a rugby ball in the udder of a cow. And uh, at one point in time, the, the, which actually isn't that different than a leather ball, but it's only got these protrude, you know, the little teeth sticking out. But what occurs is this mad kind of confusion of nipples and penises and skin. And um, BBC were doing a, a documentary about artists and they actually got a, a team in Belfast to play with this ball that had these teeth on, which was hilarious. The context behind the, the story <laughs> behind the Roy Keane photo was interesting. Because I remember that at the time, actually, Dorothy, in 2002, uh-huh. and I was just looking back uh, in the last couple of days, it was the Observer Sports Monthly. They used to have a brilliant magazine. It was a cover shot for that, a big interview he'd done September 2002, which is literally just a few months after Saipan. So this is when... Keane's image as a dark brooding figure was at its height the story apparently behind it was that Keane was getting a little bit angsty and trying to get out of the photo shoot he needed to there was a cab waiting outside so the photographer Murdo McLeod who'd found this bird a few days before uh, a bird who, who had died did a deal with Keane and said just hold this for a minute and I'll let you out of here they take this amazing photograph that you might think would have taken hours to work out but it seemed to be almost on the hoof it's one of those things I don't know is it better or worse to find out the context and the story behind photographs like that and works of art like that um i I don't know you know i think stories can be good to to know stories but i i I do not think it's interesting to find out much about the artists themselves like why am i talking to you about my sports career the reason i'm talking to you about that actually is it's kind of it's uh, i feel more and more the older i get that any speaking around art is incredibly important visual art because i think it's so misrepresented so if anyone gleans anything that might make them consider themselves in relationship to the world of art, whether it's going into the National Gallery now and sitting in front of a, a Vermeer 
or going to the Natural History Museum and seeing a stuffed basking shark, you know, that might enrich their lives. So I think it's about promoting art, really, uh, rather than oneself. So, you know, I think sports heroes are slightly different. Um, I think for artists, because we're trying to put something out in the world that will connect uh, with as many people as possible, uh, and it's all. And once it's gone from my studio, it really has nothing to do with me anymore. It is then about relationship with the viewer. So it is very different, I think. But we we do crave stories about heroes, don't we? Of uh, those other heroes, those kind of um, swimming heroes or whatever else. Or those anti-heroes, as anti-heroes, Roy Keane has been described as. You, you said you loved his anger. What was it about his anger? Back that then, yeah, it's kind of. I've, 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 I'm not so, such a fan anymore, to be honest. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, back then, yes, because I. I I think there's something about when you're when you it, it's hard to I was a swimmer but I wasn't a great swimmer I failed I, you know I was I failed Munich by point one of a second and I felt I let my brother down who was a coach but I wasn't that pushed I didn't want to put my body into into agony you know they have a theory in training that you go through hurt pain and agony and I remember the British coach saying to my brother why didn't Dorothy make it and he said you know she went into hurts occasionally touches pain but she never went into agony and it's true but there's something about the absolute passion that involves anger maybe anger with oneself fighting with oneself, especially in, in, in an individual sport where you're pushing your body to beat the time. It's something that, you know, I cry when I see, when I watch, especially swimming on the Olympics, even still, because the amount of effort they put in and they're pushing their own bodies. And it's not really about being against anyone else. It's about trying to push yourself to the, to the pinnacle of, of possibility. And I find that extraordinary. And I think sometimes an energy that drives that is anger. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, if you look at someone like Michael Phelps, mm-hmm. I, I think he actually started swimming because someone had told his mother, you know, you need to get this kid doing something because he's kind of, like apparently he was, you know, pretty angry. Like, in, you know, in school, he was kind of a bit of a, considered a bit of a problem child. And this mm-hmm. was a kind of a channel that he, that, that he was able to pour that energy into you. Do you, do you reckon that uh, unless you've got a little bit of that, some psychic wounds of some kind, <laughs> you, this is this is not really the sport for you? Yeah, do psychic wounds help us to move through life? If you're too comfortable, do you do anything? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Maybe maybe we need a bit of psychic torment to to do anything, because I think curiosity is 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 a massive thing that's so important in life, and that can be driven from trouble, can't it? Um, you know, art. Of course, it's about enjoyment, but I think it's about unsettling something. So art always should be, it shouldn't be comforting. It should be about looking at something you might not have seen before that makes your molecules shift. It's like seeing a fish on the bottom of the water and the fish moves the sand and then the sand uh, settles and it settles in a new way. Art is a funny, weird animal that can help us to consider things in a new way, I think, rather than just endorsing what's familiar the whole time. Dorothy, you said you failed by <laughs> point one of a second in your swimming career. Fail, failed to do what exactly? Make the Munich Olympics. The Munich Olympics in, in 1972. So that's, I mean, that's pretty close. <laughs> Not close enough. <laughs> what, is, what is the difference between what would have made up that 0.1 of a second? Uh, me working harder, probably. Really? Yeah, I think so, yeah. You just didn't quite have it. But I mean, to have the amount of drive and ambition you would have needed to be getting up at half five in the morning, every morning before school, all this kind of stuff, you need, I would have thought that 
to get to the level of being that close, you would have had to show a lot of that, but just not quite enough. Yeah, not quite enough, I think. And, I, you know, in, in some ways it was easy to be the best in Ireland. Um, but like you can see, it's it's very much it's very different to be the best in the world. Um, and uh, I guess uh, I guess I knew that. And uh, it, it, I guess I knew I wasn't brilliant enough and wasn't willing to suffer in the training maybe I'm a bit lazy um, I did love you know the thing about swimming as a sport is um, you, you're in that element you know I couldn't run or do anything like that um, it, it's, it's made me in, in, through the rest of my life as I said with, with diving and everything else it's made me feel so secure in that realm and I'm really grateful for that you know um, and, but it, the, and the rhythm of training it, you're held, your body temperature never goes above a certain level because you're held in that water temperature so it's a very very nice sport but it, it, it to really be brilliant you have to force push your body to the nth and you know I wasn't there that was know. the Olympic Games that was 72 right when Mark Spitz ends up winning seven gold medals right, in the I pool were you, were you watching that with some sense of regret that you could you were close to touching history in that way you know no I, I didn't I didn't ever regret it no no because I wouldn't have you know I, I watched with great delight and um, but no, I don't think so. I don't think I really regretted that. How did that dynamic work? You've mentioned your brother a good few times who coached you. How did your relationship work on a professional professional level as in swimming-wise? Well, he's nine years older than me and my sister Jane Jolly also is a swimmer. So he would get us up out of bed at six in the morning and drive us to the pool so my parents didn't have to do it. So he was almost like a surrogate father. He still actually trains the elite monster swimming team. He's retired professor of zoology. And um, there was another guy called Jimmy Martin. They trained us together. But um, yeah, it, it, it kind of worked almost like a father figure. And subsequently, um, he, well, they both coached for nothing, you know. They never got paid anything for coaching. And every day of the, of the year they did it. It was amazing passion and a kind of generosity. And then subsequently, about uh, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, I made a film with him about jellyfish where I got funded from a, or we got funded from a, the Wellcome Trust in England to make a film about jellyfish. And he did the scientific aspect of how they swim, funnily enough, these particular jellyfish, they're um, box jellyfish from Australia, the most poisonous animals on the planet, and they swim with jet propulsion. So his aspect of the film was about the scientific research of that. And I researched an old lady who had lived on Valencia Island called Maud de Lapp, who succeeded in breeding jellyfish in bell jars in her father's house in um, the early 1900s. And uh, so it was a whole other relationship, you know, that was much more uh, level, I guess. And, um, you know, and we came together in a way that was quite different than him telling me, you know, to 10 100s in, mm. on, you know, 90 seconds. Yeah, I mean, because that, that, that coach um, swimming relationship can get a bit testy at times. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. pretty, de it's pretty demanding sort of authoritarian relationship which so it's quite unusual for it to for it to be uh also a brother sister relationship was it was it did it put strain on things um no you see i think maybe even if we hadn't been if i hadn't been swimming he because he was nine years older you know it's different you know when you're 11 he's 20 so it had that authority of of age i guess also he's a very gentle um guy and uh, so it was a, a double act between himself and Jimmy Martin, I guess, the good, by, uh, good, <laughs> good guy, bad guy. And, you know, we things like, used to happen, like we'd be weighed every week. And we were like little piglets um, being brought in to see if our subcutaneous fat had grown <laughs> over a period. So 
in our teens. It was, that was probably the most anxiety-provoking thing. It's not whether you got better speed, it's how, how much you weighed, you know. It's very funny looking back on that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, it's a pretty relentless kind of a, <laughs> kind of a way of living as a, as a teenager. Can you pick out one highlight from those years, a highlight of your sporting career for us, sir? Yeah, I, it's when I won the under-11 uh, 50 meters breaststroke in Butlins and I it was just I could I couldn't believe I did it and that's what that that's you know um it was that was the highlight I guess can you remember mu- much of it were you, were you expecting to go up were you a competitive young person at that stage said I'm gonna go up to Butlins and win this or was it more a case that your brother saw the talent my brother saw the talent I had a very good uh, natural kick and um that's really what got me through those early days you know so it was more natural ability but natural ability has to come together then with hard work so that's probably where I lapsed a little bit. Did you crush the field in Butlins that day? Don't <laughs> worry, no, no, literally nobody there is listening, so you can you know, exaggerate I, all you want. I have pictures of myself standing on the podium, and it was funded by Coca-Cola, so there's these giant ads for Coca-Cola behind the podium. <laughs> and there were two Northern Irish girls, and I didn't know, I just pipped it. I just got it by the skin of my teeth, I think. Yeah, well, a win's a win. <laughs> Whatever stage of your career will keep you waiting no longer. The time has come to put all of these strands of an amazing swimming career together and figure out this sporting life looking forward to this one of Dorothy Cross. You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Kiara Murphy is our This Sporting Life Grand Marshal for 2017. Murphy, certainly none of our other guests have ever made a rugby ball with teats before. So that's an immediate advantage. Dorothy, <laughs> off you go. Definite points for that already <laughs> on the board. So Dorothy, many artists decry award ceremonies because they're seen as blunt instruments, you know, totally subjective decisions on essentially unmeasurable things. But you will surely have no complaints whatsoever when you hear the deeply forensic and coldly analytical method I use to decide who this year's greatest non-sports person, sports person will be. So 87 and a half points is the number to beat. So to come up with a score which will move you up that leaderboard, I assess your all-time sporting highlight, your current sports knowledge, and then any other factors which sound like they might matter. So it's very not short on all-time sports highlights. You appear far too modest to big it up yourself, but I will. Representing your country, winning national championships, being good enough to even be within 10 miles of an Olympic Games. <laughs> so I feel honour-bound to memorialise it here. And you've already discussed winning in Butlins which is of course the Wembley Stadium the American have the Irish Swimming World so as for current sports knowledge well the most powerful knowledge is of course self-knowledge so we should focus on what sports and in your case swimming teaches you and how it inspires you rather than vice versa so uh, you're on the pigs back there so I'm pretty close here I think I have pretty much all I need but I have one more question uh, Dorothy it is what sports person's art would you be most interested in seeing well, Current or historical? I know historic. You see, the thing about historic, and I'm maybe going to dodge here a little bit, <laughs> is, um, you know, it's, it's art and life, isn't it? And the, the race to the North Pole, Ernest Shackleton, you know, that was a race in the days that he did it on his ship, the Endurance. So I think it would, and his life and the result of that actually is art, his, 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 his shed and his ship photographs and all that. So him, Ernest Shackleton. Oh. That's it. That's all I need to know. Uh, you, I've crunched the numbers here. You're number one, Dorothy. 88 points out of oh, 100. Woo! You are top of the tree. <laughs> this has been this sporting life of Dorothy. Dorothy, a massive honour for you, I'm sure. Oh, I'm telling you. It's been absolutely amazing. Thanks so much for taking so much time. Oh really appreciate God. it. And congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Round of applause. I am a lineman for the county. 
Glenn Campbell there who passed away in the past week with Wichita Lineman. So much love coming in for our guest this morning on Second Captain Sunday, Dorothy Cross. How brilliant was Dorothy? Could listen to her all day. Fascinating artist, says Diran. Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person, Dorothy Cross has my vote. That's from Christine. Well, unfortunately, Christine, public vote is not a part of this. It's very mm. much a, it's a dictatorial approach. Listen, that you know, I, so just butt out for the time being. Yeah, I appreciate your input, but it has absolutely <laughs> no impact whatsoever on my decision making. And yet... Dorothy is number one, which is good to hear. Hi, guys. I did some gas work for Dorothy in her studio on Foley Street in Dublin. It was like a movie set. She lived at one end and I worked in, and she worked in the rest of it. What a lovely and interesting lady and artist. I was sorry she went west. Give her good luck. Wish her good luck, says Liam. Uh, I wonder was that gas work or gas work? The work <laughs> that Liam was doing was hilarious, hilarious work or he was doing some very important much needed stuff. Maintenance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say yeah. probably number two there. Excellent <laughs> discussion. Oh, my God. How we need more of this. Intelligent, inspiring and thought provoking. Dorothy, I had a heart None transplant. None of that was from our side, by the way, but that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a heart transplant last year and wanted to keep my old heart. They wouldn't let me. If they did let me, I would have given it to you for the ship, says Kevin Devitt in Westport. Beautiful text there. Dorothy's definitely one of the most charismatic guests you've ever had on the radio. I have an appointment soon and I can't drag myself away from listening to her. Simply amazing. Dorothy, please head back to Cork and paint more of Crosshaven and Skull during Calves Week. Up Cork. There's a, there's a patriotic text there. Uh, I swam with Dorothy with Sunday's Well Club. Great to hear you today. Best wishes from Claire Coleman. So tons and tons like that. Quite a few, by the way, uh, people asking where the ghost ship is now. Dorothy mentioned how great it would have been to have it tugged around the country and just pop up randomly in the coast for people to stumble across as they're spending some time by the sea. Sounds like an amazing idea. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know where it is? Go on, Owen. Surely th- this idea is about to be put in put into place yeah ghost ship got dismantled and sold off for scrap oh, instead right. so that's that was the end of that but okay. uh, it was beautiful while it lasted so listen after all that positivity from Dorothy we turn to something a lot darker now crazy events in the US over the weekend white nationalists in Charlottesville were demonstrating over the removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee those demonstrations were met by counter protests and a 32 year old woman was killed many more injured when a car was driven through a crowd of those counter protesters here is what Trump had to say a little bit of it anyway We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. What do you make of Trump's reaction again? Well, it's interesting that he said on many sides because what it meant was that he might as well not have condemned it at all. Mm -hmm. You know, so he had this big rally, and it's amazing. You should look at some of the footage of of what people are doing now. Um, You know, people walking down the street with big swastika banners chanting. They used to wear hoods. Yeah, ch- chanting blood and soil. Blood and soil is, you know, a, a Hitler-era slogan, which they've they've translated from the German. Um, uh, Hail Trump. I mean, they couldn't be more explicit about mm. what they're trying... I mean, they're saying, we are Nazis, we support President Trump, uh, and we uh, advocate white supremacy, and we want to uh, get rid of all these, these people who aren't white. And this is quite openly... It's it's not it's not a case of you know the sort of weasel words or you know they're saying well you know it's it's open Nazism literally open Nazism with armed uh, men uh, dressed up in in sort of military like uniforms you know with this, standing there with assault rifles kind of lining the streets I mean these people have no 
have no official status. It's just there as a display of this is our armed power. So it's it's really incredible that that could be allowed to. I mean, remember, if you go to the United States, still on some of their immigration forms, you, you have that question about have you or have you ever had anything to do with, you know, the Nazi government of Germany? Uh, I don't know if you remember ever, ever filling yeah, out a form yeah, to yeah, go yeah, to the United yeah, States. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things that can get you disqualified from going. But apparently, once you're already there, it's fine to do this. And president isn't going to say anything about it. It's, it's frightening when you consider the... I mean, Trump is obviously just doing this because he... These are... Um, all those people voted for him, clearly, and he doesn't necessarily want to... Uh, uh, make alienate them feel, the yeah. people who got him in there. Some of the people who got exactly, him in there. yeah. So he'll he'll just sort of say very. This is all very sad and not not actually you know, condemn it in any explicit way. Um, and that's just him posturing sort of or, or throwing shapes for his base. But it's not like that doesn't have a cost. You know, it's so reckless. It's like all week this the same thing with the with North Korea. You know, he's he's saying all these crazy things. You know, fire and fury, and our military is locked and loaded, uh, on all this sort of threatening rhetoric, which everyone assumes is is just nonsense. But the idea that he thinks he can say that and there's no cost, um, that you know there there aren't unpredictable consequences that he can't control as a result of of saying all this, it's it's pretty frightening. And on that note, we'll leave it for this morning. Hope you enjoyed the show. Our guest next Sunday, I'm very excited to say, is the actor Tom Von Lauder. Very much looking forward to that one already. If you'd like to hear us before that, we're broadcasting every day from our own studios on secondcaptains.com. Marion Fanukin's on the way. Thanks to Kira Murphy on sound. Mark Horgan and Simon Hick produced the show. Brian Highland researched. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Merv. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Go and enjoy a nice swim, maybe, for your Sunday. See you next week. Second captain, first captain, whatever. <laughs>